Today's scripture can be found in John 4, 5 through 30, and you can find it in your Pew Bible in the New Testament on page 94. So he came to a Sumerian city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Sumerian woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Sumerian woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus did not share things in common with Samarians. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it is here now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as those to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with the women, but no one said, What do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see the man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
Good and gracious God, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning is the last in our series of You Asked For It, or as I like to say, Choose Your Own Adventure, where we sought your input. We asked you, what would you like to hear us preach on? And uh, you responded. This week, we received, for this, this topic, we received a question of, I'd like to know more about the women of the Bible. And so as we were going through and figuring out who was going to do what, we came to this topic and we decided that neither one of us could just do this, not because we were excited or anything, although we were, but we realized that if I do the sermon on the women of the Bible, then it kind of becomes a woman's issue. And if Rick does it without a woman's voice as part of it, that doesn't look so good either. And so we decided that we would do a dialogue. And that's our plan for today. So we began the worship with the church's one foundation, 545. I know that one. Like, like I know how great thou art, it's number 77 in the hymnal. If you're a long-time Methodist, you just know stuff. And that's one of the things I know. And I was raised singing the hymns um, the traditional way. And then I went into a seminary, and they started talking to me about a term I'd never heard before. It's called inclusive language. And I thought that was odd because I was always included. I felt pretty good about being included. <laughs> And then I began to understand and be taught that language is a powerful force, as you know, has lasting impact on people's lives. And one of the ways in which the church has helped form the language and the spirituality of the church over the centuries is to continue to refer to all things holy, virtually all things holy, in male pronoun. So God is always he. Uh, The church is always she. And so on. And so began to realize that maybe that, that locking um, a particular inst- parts of the institution or people or God into particular gender-specific language wasn't helpful. And I really began to appreciate that and began to use uh, inclusive language in not only my worship but also in my daily life. Where that really, though, finally came into a deep impact on me was not only the fact that I'm a father of daughters, what that matters, you begin to realize how you're shaping the consciousness and the spirituality of your daughters, but also I went on a retreat um, for a three-day retreat down at Notre Dame. Oh, this was back in uh, how long ago? And um, I was, di- I was, uh, I was <laughs> yeah, it was before you were born, yes, and. Um, and uh, while I was there, it was a three-day retreat, and I had a spiritual director in the morning and in the evening, and I was working through some prayer life and some personal stuff, as you always do on those kinds of things. And she began to talk to me about my anima and animas, and I thought, I wonder what's wrong with her. She doesn't have a medical degree. Why is she talking about my anima? Well, I began to realize what she was talking about was a model of uh, psychological understanding that Carl Jung uh, was popular to write about to suggest that the human spirit is both male and female. The human spirit has within its characteristic both the essence, not, not the behavior, but the essence of both male and female. And if that were true, then so it was true of God that God has both the essence of what it is to be a male and what it is to be a female. 
Now, it's a little tricky because sometimes you think about what's a male-dominant trait, and we think about strength. Well, obviously that can't be a male-dominated trait because there are a lot of strong women. And uh, you think about people who like beauty. Well, that must be the women. Well, that's not true. There are a lot of us men who like beauty. So it gets beyond that layer and gets down into a much deeper level of spirituality. And we could do a whole retreat on it right now, but I won't take the time. What I simply want to help you understand is, as I began to understand my anima and my animas, I began to explore the wholeness of my spirit alongside the wholeness of who God is and began to realize, apart from behavior, there's a spiritual component within us that is both male and female. To nurture that, to own it, is to go deeper in your spiritual journey, which is not only to say that men, when you do that, you become more in touch with your feminine side, which is the way we often talk about it. It's about becoming more in touch with your whole truth, which enhances both male and female aspects. So it was a very interesting journey for me, and also an understanding why then, why this topic ought to be a sermon as opposed to just a class somewhere. Because worship, if it's not anything else, ought to be the place where our whole being is brought before the entirety of God and honored and worshiped and experienced. And so for us to do that, we talk about here today the women of the Bible because, quite frankly, we spend more time talking about men of the Bible. So for me, um, I grew up, when I was in elementary school, my mom was going to seminary, and Mm -hmm. she came back and introduced this idea of inclusive language to me. And um, I had never really, obviously, of course, thought of anything like that. And and this idea that of both, that God could be both male and female, but also then to look at the words that we used when we talked about mankind or men and, and how that that kind of trained us to encourage to think to and, and encouraged us to think of men first um, and so that I, I kind of uh, lived that out in, in school and would ask questions about did that mean women too when they would say man or uh, whatever and, and I started to learn all this stuff but it really for me um, that was kind of separate for my understanding of the Bible and um, I didn't really know too much about the women of the Bible, even though I was being raised by this strong feminist and growing into one myself, I could have, if you had asked me who are the women of the Bible, I would have said Ruth and Esther because there's books named after them, and then I would have said Mary, Mary, and Mary because that's basically what we know. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't for me until, uh, you know, studying, obviously, that I got to know some of the women of the Bible. And especially when I was in seminary, I had an opportunity to take a pastoral care class and working with uh, people who were victims of abuse. And one of our projects was that I went and uh, spoke with a young woman who had been um, a victim of sexual assault and talked with her about that and and offered some pastoral uh, care to her. And one of the things that she said to me was that she'd grown up in a church um, that was very traditional, very conservative, and very male-dominant. And that she had no female role models in the church. And that she felt like that, if she had known that, if she had had that, it could have been a strength for her, a a resource for her throughout this. And so one of the projects that I did for that class was to write a prayer that called upon all of the different women of the Bible and and their assets and, and, um, and wrote this for her on so that she might have these strong women role models to call upon um, in her healing. 
Uh, and in fact, a few years ago when we had our women's retreat and we talked about this, I shared that prayer then. It's something that I still use in my um, ministry. And then, um, you know, throughout seminary, I'm learning all this stuff and I'm, I'm exploring the women of the Bible. And, um, and that was really powerful. I started to learn about... Um, I, I, you kind of notice in the Old Testament, for example, that a lot of the women we know about, a lot of the way that they get their agency is through their family and through motherhood and things like that. We know about um, Sarah, for example, and her struggle to have children and, and, um, and that she was a part of the covenant that was made with Abraham and Sarah and how she decided that she was just going to take everything into her own hands and, and get things done. And we learn about Leah and, and Rachel and how um, Isaac really loved Rachel but got tricked into marrying Leah and had all kinds of children with Leah and, and things like that. We, we learn about these women. We learn about Hannah and her desire for children. And, um, and so it's really kind of this family agency. You get your, you become uh, noteworthy because of your children, because of your husband. Um, and that's kind of what I'd been taught. And, but I, then I looked at the Old Testament, and there are these, also these amazingly strong women who stood up in the face of oppression um, of the Hebrew people. You look at, um, Christine mentioned Shifra and Pua. Do you do all know who that, they are? Shifra and Pua. Helen, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Shifra and Pua were the midwives who protected the Hebrew babies at the time of Moses. Remember that um, when Moses was born, uh, all the male Hebrew babies were to be killed. The Pharaoh had put out this decree. And there, the midwives um, stood in, in opposition to that and saved and protected the babies. And they said, I'm sorry, these Hebrew women, we can't help it. They have the babies before we even get there. So we were not able to kill them. Shifra and Pua were the midwives who said that and who protected the Hebrew babies. So I learned about them. And then um, we have the story of Queen Esther, and it's um, this wonderful story about the, this woman who rose to power for such a time as this, and she took um, her people's uh, plight into consideration, and she strengthened them, and she, she ensured that they weren't killed. But do you know about Queen Vashti? Anyone? Yeah. Oh. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> queen Vashti was the queen before Queen Esther. She was the queen who said when the king commanded that she come and parade and show off her beauty for all his friends, who said, no, I'm not coming. I'm in the middle of doing something right now. I'm not going to come in and put on a parade for all of your friends. And then she was removed from the kingdom and left out of royalty, removed from all of that because they didn't want women to get the idea that it was okay to say, no, I'm not going to come and be objectified right now. Uh, and so there's Queen Vashti. And then there's Rahab. Do you know Rahab? If it weren't for Rahab, who was a prostitute, who held out the red scarf that led the people of Israel to go in and battle Jericho, she was the one who showed that, that it was safe. I mean, there are all these women throughout the Old Testament who stood up and did something, but we haven't heard too much about them. Mm -hmm. 
And when you consider the male-dominated culture in which that whole all of Scripture is written, the fact they even show up is amazing, let alone that they begin to be instruments for God's purpose and will. And then you move into the New Testament. The New Testament, I think, is very interesting because for us, it, it helps us understand the deeper appreciation of how God sees us, which is to suggest that while in the Old Testament, I think God oftentimes worked with women somewhat within the parameters of the cultural norm, and the women sometimes had to be defiant of the cultural norm to be able to be faithful to God. We move into the New Testament, Jesus begins to just reach out to people without even concern about cultural norms, just breaks right through them, and begins to interface with people that other men would not have had anything to do with, shouldn't have had anything to do with. I'll give you a couple examples. The first one, of course, is the Samaritan woman at the well, which Barbara read about just a few minutes ago. Uh, we all know why she was at the, at the well at noon, right? We were th- she was there because that's the time no one else would have gone to the well. It's clearly a situation that suggests that she should not have been, she did, she did not feel worthy to be out among the rest of the public, male or female. And yet Jesus approaches her and ministers directly to her, talks with her directly, knows all of her truth, and turns around by, because of that encounter, makes her become, or now allows her to become a testimony to the gospel. Uh, you talk about Jesus being at the f- party of the Pharisee. Remember that? Where they're all gathered around having this meal. And right before we move into what we now are getting to the season of Lent, who shows up? A woman. Uh, described uh, rather vaguely, so we're not exactly sure who she was. But the fact is she came in. She wanted to honor Jesus, even though she really didn't have a right to be there, according to the standards of the day. And she began to anoint Jesus' body. And what did Jesus do with it? Two things. He accepted her anointing and he accepted her. He said, you're, you're okay here with me. You're even okay to touch me. It's okay. We, we can honor each other in this moment. And Jesus continues to go ahead and is interfacing with, with all the people he engaged with to not treat them with gender bias. I don't know how to say it any differently. He went to the women of the Bible. He went to the men of the Bible, particularly as he walked around the, uh, in his ministry enlisted leaders in the church um, and it was for example a very critical point right who witnessed the resurrection women who witnessed the death oh yeah women plus John the point is the women were there at the most important moments of all of Christianity and the men were back home hiding cooking eggs If it weren't for the women being faithful to Christ and being in a position knowing they had the authority to be there to represent the community, we would not have had a witness to the resurrection. It's a powerful testimony. It's a testimony to suggest that Jesus interfaces with all people in the culture, men and female, male and female, equally and empowers them in a wonderful way. You were going to ask them some questions. I'm going to come back about the others in a second. Okay. Okay. So I'd like you to turn to your neighbor. Who is the Old Testament woman you think of, and who is the New Testament woman you think of when you think of women of the Bible? Turn to your neighbor. I was thinking that made sense, too. What? I was thinking that made sense, too, to come back. Yeah. All right. Who did you think of? Eve. That's interesting. I think it's interesting that you say that because I um, I think that a lot of times in some traditions, the women that you hear about are Eve 
or Mary, the mother of Jesus. Eve is, uh, of course, the example of sin, and Mary is, of course, the example of purity. And those were the two, in some traditions, those are the two women who are held out for us as examples. Um, so clearly, there, we, we don't want to be like Eve, right? <laughs> right? Who else did you hear? Nobody. Everyone said Eve. Say, say it out loud. Rahab? Pharaoh's daughter? Rachel? Uh, you, I don't, are you saying it out loud or am I saying it out loud? Ruth. Ruth, okay. Ruth, yeah. Sarah? Jephthah's daughter, I heard back here. Okay. Which you can set, talk about if you'd like. <laughs> okay. Anybody else? A lot of them, Ruth, um, we know about her story, and she was uh, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Her, both of their husbands died in that tradition. Um, she should have, Ruth should have gone back to her family of origin, and Naomi should have been left on her own as a widow with no one to care for her. But instead, Ruth said to Naomi, no, you are now my family. And, um, and Ruth adopted Naomi's um, religion, which was, uh, of course, uh, Jew, she was uh, Hebrew, and um, and and then went on and is now listed in the genealogy for the birth of Jesus um, because of all that that relationship. There's a lot of that kind of relationship aspect of women in the Bible. So okay. I want to ask you a question. Okay. Who are the two women you said you really like to think about in the Old Testament? What's their names? Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua. You just like them because they're fun to say. Yeah, I do. Shifra and Pua, baby. But I also like that story because I think that it it shows us an example for um, how sometimes you have to say no to what the power says. So sometimes there are other fun names to say, too. Okay. You like, don't want me to talk about that anymore. I don't want you to talk about that anymore because <laughs> I want to talk about Priscilla and Aquila. Okay. Because they're fun to say, too. So, so you know Priscilla and Aquila? Yes. Yes, I know you do. Do you, do you know that they're not both female names? It's a, it's a great trivia question at a party. You get them talking about people and say, what about Priscilla and Aquila? Well, they aren't two women. They are a couple. Priscilla, the wife, and Aquila is the man. And the thing that's interesting about, about them is that they are part of the early church. Uh, they are, are followers of Christ who are connected to the Apostle Paul. Here are the three things you want to know about them. One, they had the same profession, tent makers, as Paul did, and so they worked with him, and they left city to city to travel with him, took their business to follow him, partially so they could stay a part of the Christian movement, partially, I think, some suggest so that Paul would have a place to work while he was also doing his ministry, first thing. Uh, second thing is, is that they were uh, people who were quietly encouraging others to understand how to live out the faith. They listened to Apollos once give a sermon, and he was very flawed in his theology about who Jesus Christ was. And so quietly, after he was done preaching this amazing, terribly bad sermon, instead of jumping up in the middle of the sermon, they pulled him off to the side at the end of the service and said, let me talk to you a little bit. And quietly corrected him and nurtured him and became a leader of the church. And the last thing you want to know about them is this. 
They appear six times in the New Testament. Three times they're listed as Priscilla and Aquila. Three times they're listed as Aquila and Priscilla. The point being, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, order of words and language are very important. And in this model, they were not always identified in the same way. I don't know how you are. Do you call most of your friends? Do you say Mike and Amy or Amy and Mike? And do you normally refer to them in the same way? A lot of times we do that by the person we're the closest to or we know the best. But in the New Testament, Persona and Aquila are interchanged, which suggests that they were both considered equally leaders of the church, leaders in their relationship, and gifts of, of ministry to the church by the power of Jesus Christ. So I just want to suggest to you, so these are the models that we talk about of women in the Bible and the gift they give to us in understanding how we can move together as a church, which is why you and I minister together. This. this. You want to pray? Okay, let's pray. Holy and loving God, we give you thanks because we know that you love all of us equally because we know that you have given us wonderful role models in faith. People, men and women, who speak to our ordinary humanness, who teach us about what it is to be in relationship with you and with each other, who give us insight into what it is to have strength in faith and to stand up in the face of power and oppression. May we be bold and follow in the footsteps of our sisters in Scripture and of our brothers too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.